Criminal Magic. Chapter 15. Wednesday, 17.15, GMT-5. Laugh, and the whole world laughs with you. Cry, and you just may be on your fucking own. Back in town, Rafe feels surrounded. Seldom in his life has he had the sensation that things were beyond his control. Even now, sitting in his small office, sweating through the afternoon, he doesn't yet fully realize that he is not the one dictating the course of his own actions. He is persuaded, and fully believes that his thoughts, actions, decisions, the most intimately held secrets of his life, are, as always, the outcome of his independent choice. Deep in his mind, straining against the shadowy tradition of self-deception, the captive heart strains to make the truth known. But there is no audience for its claims to be the legitimate voice of Rafe's will. For as long as the deception of his treasonous mind continues, while the illusion installed by the spell of the longbones holds sway over his perceptions, he must struggle with the consequences of his actions and their implications for the future of his work, as if the external appearance of interference were the only true threat to his plans. Why are they here? He simply doesn't trust the coordinator's statement that she and her fellow collective members are visiting to check on the well-being of one of their donor clients. Rafe mops his brow. It's hotter than it ought to be this time of year. Nothing unique in that. Change is closing in on all sides. Has been for ages. A grim smile steals his mouth for a moment. Fortunately, some of the changes are of my own making. At least I won't be caught out by those. This thought gives him more than a modicum of comfort. Knowing what the truth is allows him a latitude in planning that those outside the empire of his head cannot enjoy. Rafe breaks the bonds of indecision and leans toward the pile of administrative noise clogging his dusty desk. May as well occupy myself until dinner. He begins reviewing the nearest file, using the circumstances to convert what he normally considers odious make-work into a therapeutic distraction. Renee and Jack North are chatting amiably. Their conversation is animated and loud. Big men sometimes act as large as they are, and these last two fall into that category. Last time I was up this way, I had myself a near thing with some of the local boys. Not down here exactly, a little to the northwest. You know Bukaramanga at all, Jack? Over Columbia Way, got some real bad boys over that neck of the woods. Only to pass through, Nortenio shakes his head. Can't say I've had much reason to go up into that part of the country. Y'all ain't missing nothing special, I will say. Though when we got some mighty fine metalwork up that way. Time of time, I've had a call to spend, you know, uh, bits of my work up there. And what sort of work do you do that brings you to a place like that? Jack asks as he draws on a soda. Oh, mining, treasure hunting, that sort of thing. Like I was saying, last time I was out toward Bukaramonga, some of my boys had told me about this here bunch of gold, and such as found out in the countryside around there. Said to myself, I ought to get up on there, double quick. So I jump in the old Jenny and flap over. No sooner got myself on the ground than a pack of thieves shows up, every damn one of them shoving and fussing and trying to get to the front of the line. And this is a, what kind of work again? Jack spits out a laugh. Sounds like your line has the same players as mine. Bit of a roughneck bunch, little on the carefree side. See, y'all got the picture, Jack. Same style, I'd say. Me, though, I confess my uh, motivation, you call it. Well, it's probably safe to say I got myself a little more dirt on my build. You know what I'm saying? Not that I'm into guns or drugs. That sort of trade puts me off my feed. Renee interrupts his story long enough to down a draft of the beer he's coddling. Damn good to have a wet one with all this heat and all, no? Let's see. Yeah, well, so I was up in this place, call it El Bolo's, what they is calling it. All kind of law and such, swarming around. Lots of nervous folk and all pistoleros, armed to the teeth. No trust in sight, loads of cash. From where he's lying in a hammock, Answer says, 
I suppose you've seen this sort of a mining operation, Jack. It's the kind where those that live get to make the claim. Sort of a lottery-style strategy. I'm sure you've heard of it. Common out here on the frontier. Mock me if you must, my friend, Rene tips his bottle towards answer. Mock me if you must, but sincerely, Jack, it's a rewarding industry if you follow the rules. The market, as they see, is self-ordering. So, you were saying? Jack is ready to hear the rest of the story. Just looking at Rene, he knows that this is a man whose substance is essentially what you see. Both feet come down on your side of a question? Well, then, it's a good thing. Those feet land elsewhere in the debate. That's going to be a hard contest. My thanks to you, sir. Rene leers his annoyance at answer. At least there's one genial type in this lot, and coordinator there. He tips his bottle to where coordinator sits, apparently staring into space, while in fact trying to read some files on her retinal display. She's at least got the manners to stay quiet while a fellow tries to spin a yawn. So with short version, army runs the action, only a few real bad types, them what truly got no reason to go on living anyways, eat it during the time we all work in the site. There's six groups in at a million each all pushing the issue 24-7, and we come out of it, me and my boys, some of the most beautiful gold work you ever seen. Have to say, was the best piece of business I ever witnessed from the Colombian army. They might not be able to catch them a single bad guy, but there's mighty on the spot with this old job. Yes, sir, on the spot. Two weeks, give or take a day, and the place is clean as a jelly jar in a boy's home. Anyway, that's the only time I've been up Bukhara Monga way since. Though I confess, I wish I had called to go out there sometime. Good-looking women. Answer lays with his eyes closed, focused on his breathing. He sees Luz, walking in a wind. She staggers, nearly losing her balance before an unseen force lifts her up. She is looking into the sky, a sky alight with bits of something alive seeming about the clouds. Answer pinches his eyes closed tighter, but he cannot make out what it is she sees. The humid day sets on him heavily. Another image comes to mind. He stands, arms outstretched. It's difficult to maintain the pose. Looking down at his feet, he sees that he is balancing on the edge of a razor. It does not cut his bare skin. Rather, it cleaves the space below him into two hemispheres. On one side of the blade, a drop of unthinkable depth opens. In its lowest regions, Answer can make out a yawning mouth lined with teeth. On the other side, an amber mist boils, undulating and writhing in sensual waves. Suddenly the image is gone, replaced by nothing but the sparks of light that loop and orbit across the inside of eyelids that have been compressed a bit too tightly. What am I doing here? It's not the first time he has asked himself that question, and in recent days, it has sought to gain increasing amounts of answer's attention. What purpose is there in my actions? When this vexatious thought first took up residence in his consciousness a couple years earlier, he had dismissed it as nothing more than a revisionist splinter trying to lodge itself under the fingernail of his purpose. Rejected for lack of interest, yet it kept coming back. Whether or not he took an interest in the question, it had a way of burping up, Back at the kidnap in Portland, sitting at the bar, it had been the same. He always hesitated when the notion would steal his attention for a moment. Observing that there is no purpose to one's act, as one is about to create severe crime, has a decidedly lethal quality to it. Discipline, long-ingrained focus, usually steps him back from the edge of inopportune questioning, preserving for the moment his ability to survive moving ahead with business as usual. Back there. That's how Answer thinks of time when he still felt a thrill of purpose. Back there includes his total commitment to the formation of the collectives. He and Kali were joined at the hip back there. And what else? All the adventure of crime in the name of social progress, all the satisfaction that out of what would otherwise have been a purely self-indulgent passion for action, there was a product of value to others. What exactly happened to the man from back there? Where is that guy now? And if it's all done, passed, canceled, 
whatever claims to ethical certainty and signs of moral rectitude, neatly stored or severed, where is the satisfaction that one ought to feel, the freedom promised by the ambivalence of spirit? Fucking shit. If the line is written down, and the last words are on the page of chapter Call Me Mr. Wright, why continue doing the laundry on Collie's Flexan royalties, for instance? Gotta be something more than an old friend's obligation to cover the guy's identity as the true inventor of Flexan armor, and who knows how many other weapons, energy, and technical devices. Especially since it's me that directs the cash into half a dozen front charities I made up so that hapless sap can float the costs of his community conscience without looking like a fat cat with a need to give. If I'm all done with the whole world then where's the cancelled check? He rolls off the hammock and steps outside for a breath of fresh air. His palms are damp. Man, something up here has a big range. Deep in his chest, he feels the tightness of anxiety that anticipates a threat. Answer looks at the others. Bring it on, he thinks. Just bring it on, I guess. At least a little throwdown would get me out of my own fucking head. Coordinator, for her part, is trying to work. Not all that easy with the amount of bullshit in the air, but she has labored under worse conditions and still gotten the job done. Her encrypted house spectrum only satellite laptop is plugged into the pocket of her loose pants. Everything but her legs is parked in the shade. Gotta love this setup, she thinks. The mini-computer downloading files, and there's no hurry because the inkjet design sprayed on her pants, blouse too, but there's no need for that much juice, is composed of inorganic nanorods that use the quantum multiplier of certain color light waves to increase the efficiency of solar absorption. Battery-free me. Pants stay cool, tools stay hot. Office of Director to Stations Coordinator P. Northwest. Increased contact, chatter, secure, text, Petro Group Security Divisions. Suggest suspect, someone trying to divide interests. Apparent uncertainty, remotive, increased evidence, main players not source of undercut program. Time sensitive, political weight, end. She thumbs in a reply. No new info. Off notes in Cavalli here, looking for traditional form with corrupt core. Wait something odd and looking. With others, unknown factors, with one exception. She stays plugged for a bit longer as she reviews some file data that has nothing to do with her present endeavor. Paperwork. Who the hell invented paperwork? But redundancy always guarantees full employment. Say, Jack, coordinator looks up. Is there anything liquid in the house, or do we just sweat to death up here? Uh, No, ma'am, Nortenius smirks. We try not to let our visitors dry out all at once. I'd like to make it last a little. Like torture. Slower the better. In keeping with that goal, we put a few drops of water in the lack in the refrigerator. That's the uh, large white box to your right. Uh-huh, thanks. She steps around to the cold box and snaps open the door. It takes all of three seconds to locate a bottle of water. She takes in the room, drinking in the face and form of each of the three men. She has a pretty certain feel for two of them, and is convinced that this most recent entry into the Lost Man sweepstakes is no lightweight either. Luz is missing, but she for sure carries some weight. Coordinator's not exactly sure how heavy it is, but she feels like she might find out. She puts loose in the unknown assets column. Below the veneer of certainty, behind the projection of confidence and power, there is a growing sense within Coordinator that something worryingly large and unmanageable is stirring, all around. It's a feeling she's had once or twice before, during work, a gut-level awareness that you've just taken a moment to refresh yourself, just a moment, and that the very place you've chosen to plant your ass is right on top of a particularly fidgety volcano. The view is great, but the sense of calm is about as reliable as a Macau hooker's idea of a 30-minute trick. This guy Rafe, he is just wrong. Dead wrong. She can't put her finger on it, but something about the man makes her toes curl in her shoes. And for a girl that drinks vinegar aperitifs, that is some bad news. Wednesday, 1736, GMT-8. 
Dana seems, initially, unaffected by the drug. But after a few moments, she begins to slump ever so slightly in the recliner, and the usual clarity and presence reflected in her eyes is replaced by a languid, distant lack of focus. Dr. Journey opens a jar of clear gel and dabs bits of it cautiously onto Dana's temples and forehead in a spiderweb pattern. Superconductive silicates, she mutters to no one in particular. It's the narrative product of a thinker long used to talking to herself as a means of learning. This will enhance the strength-to-signal ratio to the point where the EEPROM can get a good catch to download data. She pulls a very homemade-looking metering contraption from its case and begins affixing electrodes to the patches of gel on Dana's head. When they are all pasted on, she looks briefly at her watch and takes up a position behind her desk. An air of expectation fills the room. That should be enough time for the pentathol, she says. From another drawer in the desk, she pulls a cigarette-sized metal tube with a small connection adapter attached to one end. Jesus, Kali says, that's the storage? Jacked up flash ROM, Hedda says. Old technology, very good utility. Generally more than enough to hold the data stream until it can be decompressed by a more robust processor. She connects the tiny stick unit to the EEPROM. Powering up, she murmurs, and switches the unit on. There is a subdued beep from the EEPROM. A single red button blinks. Other than that, there is no indication whatsoever that anything is happening. Generally, this should take no longer than 10 to 15 minutes, Dr. John Lee says. Then we should be ready to take the files into the lab and review the data. Revolutionary, Pill says. It's unbelievable. Actually, Hedda offhandedly corrects, the industry scientist who first constructed the pusher implant technology is the real innovator. I've merely made some additional modification and repurposing of that basic understanding. But man, Pill says, shaking his head, I mean, we're basically reading her mind here. If that doesn't change the balance of power between people and their machines, I don't know what does. Collie shakes his head, not necessarily in agreement. I know what you mean, John, but we've got to remember what we really find in these sessions. The primary personality is a construct, not a recording device. What we see when we review the data streams from one of these mining sessions could be wish fulfillment, dream, memory, could be anything. It's not as accurate as looking at a video log. We're peeking into her unconscious mind, but we have no way of sorting out which source file we're reviewing. We've known for 40 years that memory is nothing like a computer. What's worse is we also now know that the more memory is recalled, the more untrue slash rewritten it becomes. Maybe we're in luck since Dana hasn't been able to remember what happened. It could be we get the outline more or less faithful to the reality she observed. Still, like the good doctor says, it's flailing in maybe land. His impromptu rant trails off. Precisely what has led me not to publish any findings, Hedda nods in agreement. Quietly, privately, she loves and admires the mind of this young genius. That, however, is no one's business. The possibility for misinterpretation is very large. They sit, waiting silently. Dr. Bjornley checks her watch after some time. Time, she declares. Switching off the power on the EEPROM device, she walks over to Dana and delicately removes the electrodes. Dana continues to stare at something in the indeterminate distance, seemingly unaware of her surroundings. Dana, Dr. Bjornley calls. Dana, I want you to look at me. Dana, absently obedient, lifts her head and looks into the scientist's eyes. I want you to lie down here on the couch for a bit and take a little rest, hmm? When you wake, you'll feel refreshed and comfortable. We will make sure you are not alone. Someone will be with you the whole time. I don't want you to worry. Do you understand? Dana shakes her head in the affirmative, rolls herself up like a pill bug on the couch, and closes her eyes. Hedda withdraws a stethoscope from the pocket of her lab coat and takes Dana's heart rate and pulse. She should be out for several hours. She looks at Collie. You brought the laptop? Yep, Collie says, tapping his case. Have you got a universal connector for that storage unit? Of course, Journey says. Why don't we go into my lab? She leads them through a door into her adjoining research area. 
You can set up right over there, she says, pointing at a free space on a nearby lab table. Collie removes his aged laptop from the case and boots it up, connecting Dr. Jornley's tiny flash ROM drive to a cable. The data stream should appear as a long series of static images, so you can just open it with any video editor and run it as a motion file, Pillhead chimes in. Got it. Collie dips his head in assent, tapping through menus to find the appropriate software. All right, off we go. The screen dithers into resolution and then flashes to life with a blizzard-like sequence of images. Whoa, Pill says. Can we slow that frame rate? Yeah, working on it, Collie replies as he intricately strokes the keyboard on the laptop. This should be better. The sequence of images appearing on the screen arrives more slowly now, but each individual frame is color-saturated to the extreme, and individual elements are very difficult to make out in detail. There's a sequence of countertops, windows, some kind of equipment. Hold on, Dr. Jornley says. Shuttle back a moment. Collie scrubs the stream backwards. There, she says. The reflection in that window looks like a beaker rack. It's a lab, Pill says. No doubt. No accident she felt at home today. Don't be too sure, my man. Scrolling forward, Collie says, restarting the video stream. Suddenly, a forest. Light through trees. What looks like a van in a clearing, then motion through another window. Maybe a vehicle? It looks speed blurred. Then a crystal clear sequence. This should be interesting, Hedda says. Clarity nearly always seems to indicate a primary memory formation. Increased traffic on the myelin. They're watching through her eyes. Climbing rope, a harness, other people, dense forest, looking up. It's a tree sit, Collie says. Those look like redwoods. That puts her in with eco-folks somewhere in NorCal or Oregon, most likely. Then there's another blurry series of frames, followed by some perfectly resolved frames of a man falling. His arms are flailing wildly as he flies past, but nothing in this perspective point of view indicates Dana has made any move to help. Hang on, Pill says. Uh, let's uh, hold up right here for a second. Let me see that pass again. He reviews the scene once, twice, and then he says, Does it look to anybody else like she just let that guy fall? Remember, Carly says, we don't know what this is. It could be a dream. It doesn't have to be a memory. Unlikely, Hedda's tone carries the weight of conviction. Though it cannot be stated absolutely, I am convinced that these sort of images are most likely correlated to recollection. I have not recorded that level of image fidelity with anything but genuine memory. The stream skips through a few more sequences that are very hard to make out, before clearing briefly again. Rain through a car window, the window rolls down, revealing a neon-lit street heading down towards a bridge. Shit, Pill says. That's local. I know that place. That's here in Portland. The window begins to roll back up, but stalls halfway through as Dana's attention picks out a man walking across the street, heading toward what looks like a club or a bar. Collie stops the video. Hold on, he says. Let's have a closer look at this. He scrubs back and scans in tighter on the figure across the street. He cranks up the resolution as high as possible and reruns the sequence of the figure walking toward the door. Hmm. There. The man turns his head for a moment and makes eye contact with Dana. Collie scrubs the same sequence back and forth a few times and lets out a low whistle. The figure in the frame looks an awful lot like, actually cannot be anyone other than, his old friend answer. He rubs the stubble on his chin as he mulls over the quaking picture on the screen. Curiouser and fucking curiouser, he mumbles to no one in particular. Wednesday, 1831, GMT minus 5. The dinner and Action Direct's meeting hall proved to be of little interest to any of the four visitors. Food of the most basic type, rice, stringy beef, some sort of honey paste. They ate more out of courtesy than appetite. Even Renee, whose pursuit of gluttony was well documented, found himself lackadaisically picking at his plate. Coordinator sits draped over her chair, listening to the buzz of who knows what kind of insects just outside the mosquito-netted porch. So, Jack, she starts up, how do you feel about the progress Amazon Direct is making these days? 
I was wondering when we'd get around to business, Norteno grins. Plenty of time for it when you're not eating, right? Well, from where I stand, we're stuck. His face loses its charming smile and hardens a bit. The Petro gang just keeps pushing deeper and deeper into protected zones. Look, these assholes have punched a swath right up to sacred mountains, almost all the way to Water Snake or Rock Lake. It's an absolute ass-whipping for the environment, and it looks like they're going to wipe out every living thing in the way. We can bang on them. Hell, we've been doing that for decades, but we're losing ground. Lots of it. What about the resources coming in from the business associations with the UWA? Is it a money problem? If it's a question of funding, the collective could... Jack stays her with a drink in his hand. Nah, it's not that. I mean, sure, we could always use more money. What enterprise can you name that couldn't do better with more cash? But that's not it. The real problem is the world's still funding our enemies with demand. Folks still use oil no matter what the carbon tax. The fact that over half the world's electricity still comes from those things, heavy equipment, long-distance hauling, half the world's cars still drinking oil one way or another. So the field shrinks all the time. The boys put new straws in the cup all the time. Pure supply and demand, economics 101. Look how easy it is to work with the so-called sovereign governments, places like Colombia and Venezuela. Hell, after Ecuador blew their claim against Chevron back in 10, international lawsuits mean zip shit. Like Renee there was telling us today, ask and you shall receive, you know, same old thing. As long as there's takers for the product, there'll be people sucking it out of the ground. On top of that, getting right down to it, we're imposing our way of doing things on the locals. I've been at the point end of that, and that way of doing business, well, at the end of the day, it just blows. The sharp taint of Jack's frustration hangs in the heavy night air. For a while, no one says anything. Rafe does his best to appear relaxed. As much as I dislike that oaf, he's right, he thinks to himself. Being the host allows a certain modicum of genuine concern for the guest's well-being that masks his rising concern that he is going to have to act much sooner than he had planned. What Jack said is true. The gorge leading up to the shamanic lake is being consumed at a terrifying rate. He'd been on dozens of secret trips gathering Amati in that zone, and each foraging mission produced less of the herb than the one before. The principle of plant community symbiosis is finally showing its hand, Take away 11 plants of various kinds from around a rare plant, and that plant's likelihood of survival will be proportionally diminished. Even with his work at its present advanced level, this shrinking of the gene pool is a near disaster. As far as he can tell, Amati grows only one place on Earth, the canyon leading to Water Snake of Rock, and that place is rapidly becoming a choss pit of development slag. For that very reason, Rafe has accumulated as many samples as possible, rendering some into their genetic constituency and smuggling live samples to the new site, the new place where it's possible to imagine circumstances under which the plant might be able to thrive outside its original habitat. The bend in this whole well-engineered project is that in order to obtain the benefits of the herb, it cannot itself be genetically altered to ensure its survival in the new place. Helpless science. Hopeful science. The aspirations to greatness harnessed and inhibited by its own rules. Life is alive with humor and most of it proves to be black. Coordinator turns her attention to their host. And you, Mr. Kohler, what's the future for the nutraceuticals business and the political structure of the UA Amazon Direct Alliance? If what Jack tells us is true, unless I'm missing something, it doesn't look all that promising. Am I missing something? There is an air about Rafe Kohler that makes her think of a crooked accountant. She smells the faint odor of corruption emanating from him, imagines him somewhere wearing an eyeshade and cooking the books. She makes up her mind to look a lot closer. I see you, pal, she thinks to herself. I got you down, even if you're not really there. Yes, I believe you are missing something, Rafe says. His tone is genial, not in the least hostile. The simple facts, after all, explain everything. Accepting what Jack says, 
fatalistic as it is, doesn't imply that our project here is a failure. Elements of it, perhaps, as with any project, the model is always superior to the real outcome. He dabs his mouth with a napkin and takes a sip of his beer. I see the long-term prospects for our business relationship here with the UA growing, not shrinking. In the near term, there are substantial losses being incurred by the environment, and we may lose the struggle to contain the petroleum companies. But the indigenous peoples are still far better off with the aid of Amazon Direct than without it. At least they can make themselves heard, and with the income from their various tribal businesses, they can to some degree enforce their wishes. Compared to circumstances as they were before we arrived, I think there's been tremendous progress. Now, does that progress include the terrible messing around y'all done with the culture, Rafe, old boy? All heads turned toward Rene, who was working his large body out of the shallows of an enormous chair he's been practically lost in. I mean, Jack over here makes the point that there's some, how you call it, a disconnect, I believe is the word I'm looking for. There's a disconnect between y'all's talk and y'all's walk with regard to the local folk. Isn't that right? That y'all got some serious problems of white man Indian variety. He swings an unlit cigar into his mouth and begins to gnaw on the stub. That's what y'all was saying, wasn't it, Jack? That there was all kind of charge on between the young folks and the old folks on account of they got to be a way to keep with the old beliefs about not hurting folks, and y'all's new doctrine of blowing shit up to keep the peace. I myself could see how that could be a mite confusing. But Rafe Kohler is no novice, nor is he an idiot. What you say is true, Rafe answers. There is no denying it. Part of him is experiencing a fit of agitation that he should even have to consider wasting his efforts on this person, this whole situation, but the detached intellectual sees an opportunity and takes it. Let's all take a good look at ourselves. All of us here, with the possible exception of yourself, Rene, are victims as well as authors of the ambiguous circumstances you describe. No one here who has anything to do with direct social action can claim to be above reproach. Whether its face is crime on the behalf of society, as is the case with our esteemed guest's coordinator and answer there, or sabotage and expropriation, which is Mr. North's field, or manipulation of social custom and economic need, which, apart from the applied science, is my area of expertise, we are all equally guilty of creating and using ambiguity to advance our own agendas. Isn't that a fact? So piety aside, Renee, I don't see how singling me out does anything to alter the facts. Which are? asks Answer. Rafe, appearing to almost enjoy himself for a moment, turns to address Answer directly. The facts are quite simple. All of us, regardless of motivation, are bound to act in a way we feel will be most effective to achieve our desired outcome. All actions produce consequences and conflict. All actions are morally ambiguous, and all actions produce simultaneously satisfying and unsatisfying results. You work for the results you want, and then deal with the unwanted consequences. That is simply what it is to be human, whether you're Uwa or Ikotaj. Silence. Following Rafe's declaration, no one says a word. Coordinator smiles politely at Rafe and looks around the room. The guy may be right, but he's precious and pretentious, and she finds herself thinking that she could do the world a favor by taking him down a peg or two. Rafe stands and begins shoving his papers into a valise whose leather exterior is as thin as tissue paper. I'm afraid I have to leave you, Rafe says after a moment, stifling a yawn. Tomorrow's a busy day, and I have to get back to our facility in Maracaibo early. He glances towards the coordinator. If you should need to come see me in the city center, I'll let you know in the morning, she says. Right now I have to consider my options. Well then... He nods and gives his guests a slight bow. I'll be off.
We will be back next week with chapter 16 of Criminal Magic. We hope you will join us. If you are enjoying this story, please tell some friends and leave a rating and review of the podcast. Thank you for listening.